The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. I'm joined today by Bill and Kristen uh, of the Mind Over Murder podcast. And uh, Bill, did, did you did you and I meet at CrimeCon? We did briefly, but it, I know we were there with 5,000 of our closest personal friends. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> I was like reading, the, I'm like, I think I think Bill is the guy I was talking to with Jim Clemente. That's that- correct. That's correct. You guys were getting ready to do something, and Jim said, hey, Bill, walk with us. And so- yeah we sort of fell into step and we went off to the green room while you and Jim were getting ready for something. Yeah. And I think that, I think I've heard a bit about you in your case from Jim over the years, just from telling me about stuff he's working on. Did Jim, so you guys, you're, uh, uh so we're going to be talking about the colonial parkway murders, which, uh, Bill, you have a, a, a personal connection to right? one of your, um, your sister, Kathy was one of the, one of the victims. That's correct. Right. And, and, and so, and Jim has featured that story on on real crime profile. If I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, right. I think I've listened to the story there. We did four episodes a couple of years ago Mm -hmm. on real crime profile. And actually, um, (laughs) I say this good naturedly because Jim and I ended up really connecting and we ended up, um, producing a television series, the lovers lane murders on mm-hmm. oxygen that featured Kristen Dilly and myself. And uh, of course, uh, Jim Clemente in, in prominent roles discussing the case, Jim actually took some flack from real crime profile listeners who felt that he was argumentative or, or difficult. Kristen, I don't remember if you remember exactly what people said, but they, they sort of, went at Jim a little bit, you know, Bill's the brother of a murder victim. You should be kind of nicer to him. And I've known Jim for years and really admire him. And I know that Jim is a man of extremely strong opinions, but they're coming from a place of brilliance. So you might as well hear him out because he really does know what he's talking about. Yeah. Jim, Jim gets that. Well, I think we all get it a lot. There's never, I was just dealing with a, an asshole, uh, I like to call them a uh, person <laughs> on the internet a few minutes ago, right before I came in here. Uh, so when you've uh, been doing it for a little while, but yeah, you, you hear that a lot uh, with Jim that he's just so, you know, he's so argumentative. It's like you, he's an expert and you asked him for your opinion and you're upset about him giving a strong opinion. When you asked him for that, that's kind of the whole reason you talk to him. Well, and on top of that, Jim's a New Yorker through and through and right. Yeah. You know, I lived in New York for a number of years. I get that, you know, he's a guy who's going to tell you what he thinks. And it's funny. He and I really mixed it up on real crime profile. And I thought it was great. I, it didn't bother me or hurt my feelings in the least. You want to hear from uh, an expert like Jim. I sometimes say things to Jim intentionally to antagonize him, uh-huh. like arguing with him. <laughs> 
At matter of fact, at CrimeCon, he was in the middle of a meet and greet with someone, and I popped in the room like, Jim, uh, I just was talking to these people, and I'm pretty sure the owl did it in the Michael Peterson case. <laughs> and then <laughs> And then ran away, and I could still hear him yelling at me when I was like a hundred yards down the hallway. <laughs> <laughs> Jim's not a subscriber to the owl theory, by the way. Uh, in case you didn't get that well, from context, for what it's worth, I'm not either. Yeah. But at, at the same time, Kristen Dilley is a big Jim Clemente fan. Yes, I I am a Jim Clemente fan girl through and through. That's <laughs> it. Well, let's get to know you a little bit, Kristen. So. Um, so what is your, how did you become connected with all this, the podcast and and connected with Bill and everything? Well, I grew up here in Williamsburg. And so I grew up hearing about the Colonial Parkway murders case. There has never been a time in my life when I haven't been familiar with this case, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, news pieces about the case or just sort of the, the overall warning to people in my age group, don't drive on the parkway at night. There's a serial killer who... Mm-hmm. killed eight people. So I was very familiar with the case and uh, I had that kind of interest in it. But a couple of years back, I was writing a book about um, the things that murder victims families go through and um, you know what it takes to to cope with this truly awful event that happens in people's lives. Um, and I did it because I had a friend who was murdered. And so I started writing about her story. And then I thought, well, who can I talk to next? And the first group of people that popped into my head was, I wonder what the Colonial Parkway murders families are doing now. I wonder how this case is going because I hadn't heard anything about it in a while. So after you know working my way through Google, the one name that kept popping up over and over in all of the coverage about the Colonial Parkway murders case was Bill Thomas. Uh, and so I, I reached out to him and said, I'd like to talk to you about your sister's case. Are you open to that? And after a very thorough vetting process to make sure that I was not some crazy, um, he did agree to talk to me. And we've had a partnership going since 2016. I think 15, right. 16, something like it feels like forever. I'm starting to lose track of time. Uh, and we started the podcast uh, two and a half years ago. And it's been the two of us against the world ever since. Right. Now, Bill, how did you determine that that uh, Kristen was, in fact, not a crazy? Uh, because I've been duped a number of times over the years from people who want to help. <laughs> well, over the years, I've been heavily involved in the Colonial Parkway murder case, obviously for 35 years, but most heavily over the last 12, 12 and a half years since the story broke that the FBI had lost 78 highly graphic crime scene photos from the Colonial Parkway murders. Over the years, people have reached out to me quite a bit, and I've made myself very easy to find, which is how Kristen found me. I've actually signed hundreds of times in regular media, online media, you name it. Whenever people were discussing the case, I would try to weigh in and move the conversation forward. And I would sign Bill Thomas, brother of Kathy Thomas, Colonial Parkway murders. And I often would include my email address, sometimes even my phone number. And I knew that we were dealing with a situation when your name is Bill Thomas. It's not John Smith, but William Thomas is a pretty common name. Mm -hmm. I wanted to make myself easy to find, but that meant that people could reach out to me and sometimes they're kind of odd. 
what I usually try to do, not always successfully, is I usually try to not immediately engage with someone. I'll usually, mm-hmm. like if someone reaches out to me and says, I'd like to talk to you about the Colonial Parkway murders or another case, I'll usually try to put them off saying that I'm busy because I usually am. And then what I try to do is do a little bit of online research in terms of who is this guy, Bob Roth, for example, if you and I hadn't met mm-hmm. or whoever it is and just get some basic facts. One of the things I don't like about the world we live in the internet and so on is that a lot of people will hide behind screen names and that sort of thing. Like for me, I always say who I am and I always try to give people right. indication of where I'm coming from, but not everybody does that. So sometimes I will just try to tap the brakes lightly and I do it every single day and I'll say, you know, can I get back to you and can I get some contact information for you? So you don't just get to fly this right theory about the colonial parkway murders or whatever. A woman reached out to me today whose um, sister-in-law was murdered in Boston in 1981. I don't know anything about this person at this moment, mm-hmm. but I said, let me check it out. And then in the meantime, you know, she sent me a link to a book that she's written and a website and, you know, that sort of thing. So I'll do some checking. And then obviously if it's something that impacts the colonial parkway murders or might be something we'd want to discuss on mind over murder, I never move forward without getting Kristen's input in terms of what do you think about this? And we both hear from people. She just heard from a, a victim's family today, yesterday, yesterday. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. So what is, what is your background, Kristen? What did you do for, a living. So obviously you, you, you wrote a book, so you're an author. Well, I'm uh, trying to write a book. It's still, still in progress. Um, I'm a high school English teacher. Okay. And so I, I have taught at the same high school for, I, I think it's, it was just 10 years um, here in, uh, here in Virginia. And, um, but like I said, crime has always been something that's been on my radar. Um, and so when I had the opportunity to work with Bill I started expanding my, uh, you know, my role from teacher to researcher, victims advocate, podcaster, and suddenly I find myself at forty-one years old with a whole entire second job. Um, right. And what do your students like, think about that? Do your students know that you're doing the podcast? Yes, um, some of my students are aware. Others of them are, are, you know, they don't care to know, and and it's that's totally fine. But I do have some students who are true crime, uh, you know, true crime fans, and Either they'll discover the podcast on their own or they'll notice. Um, I, I just have like a little mind of a murder postcard on my on my wall in my classroom. Uh, and they'll they'll notice and go, what is that? And then every once in a while, someone will come in and go, you have a podcast? Miss Dilly, you have a podcast? <laughs> um, and at that point, some of them will start listening regularly and they'll ask questions. But uh, a lot of my kids don't know and, and don't care, quite frankly. And that's perfectly fine with me. Uh, it's a little terrifying to know that my students listen to my podcast. Yeah, I, I, ha- I have two teenagers. I have, I have a going to be a junior and going to be a mm-hmm. senior. And and they are both always thrilled when they go to school. And some student will be like, oh, my God, your dad's Bob Ruff. I listen to his podcast. My, mom, <laughs> my dad and I listen to his podcast. And they're like, oh. Well, actually, my son, the senior, mm-hmm. is uh, he's he's gone with it. And then he now identifies himself as Bob Ruff or as, as Quentin Ruff son of Bob Ruff, host of the truth and justice. That's how his social media 
is. Oh, <laughs> I called funny. him the other day. Yeah, I called him the other day and his uh, his voicemail answers and he goes, you've reached Quentin Ruff, son of Bob Ruff, host of the Truth and Justice podcast. <laughs> <laughs> He's kind of made me a meme in his school. That's oh, fantastic. Dude. Well, that's very cool as opposed to, oh, dad. <laughs> I get some of that for my daughter. She had uh, a couple of years ago, she had uh, she she needed help with something with math and she came home and she's like, hey, um, do you have like an extra hat or a T-shirt or something that you could sign? And I was like, for what? She said, well, my friend Ruger said he'd help me with my math if I'd get him an autograph from you. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> wow, see, that's fantastic. Bob, there's value in this. Right. Oh yeah, yeah, and I was, I was like, oh, looks like Dad's a little cooler than you. <laughs> I, anytime they, because, because of course I'm like the 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 quintessential dad joke goofball dad, and anytime they point that out to me, I'm always like, well, how many Instagram followers do you have? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, if you want to talk about cool, let's look at our social media followings that you guys all live on your phone all the time. They don't really appreciate that at all very much, <laughs> other than asking me to tag them and stuff all the time. I'm like, I don't want the creeps that follow me. Hey, listen, if you follow me, I love you. You're not a creep, but I don't want you following my my children um, because you're too interested in murder. So I don't. <laughs> but they're always like, just just tag me, and then in one of your posts, and then I can get some more followers. Well, if somebody did study your social media platforms, which I haven't gone and looked for your kids, they could probably figure out who your family was anyway. Yeah, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be tricky. And they and they've made all those arguments to me. They're like, just put, put a picture up and says, follow Bella. You know, I'm like, no, I don't, no, I no, 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 but uh, that's creepy. My children also don't care what I'm doing on the podcast, though. They only they, they only care, you know, when it benefits them a little bit. Yeah, I like uh, the, uh, trading your autograph for, you know, help. Yeah, for two. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and, and so Bill, what, what do you do for a living other than the, than all the work on the case and the podcast? Well, I've been really lucky. I'm far enough in my life now where I don't have to work full time for years. I was, um, I worked in the entertainment business. I worked in the music business and I was a senior executive with, uh, the entertainment labor unions. So I worked for, mm-hmm. uh, SAG-AFTRA as an executive director and I was with the American Federation of Musicians and the art directors guild. And then prior to that, I worked for ASCAP, the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, who are the songwriters organization that collect and distribute royalties. And I did legislative work with them, public affairs, they call it. So I've spent a lot of time in D.C. lobbying for copyright laws and that sort of thing, and involving ASCAP's songwriter, composer, and music publisher members in the whole political process. So it's actually been an interesting career so far. Now I'm in a place where I don't have to work full time and, uh, I'm working on a book on the colonial parkway murders, uh, just like Kristen is working on her book. And, um, I was doing a lot of podcasting as a guest talking about the colonial parkway murders and why is Uh it still unsolved and the eight young people that were taken in, in the murder series and I'd done a bunch of podcasts and Kristen was very encouraging of podcasting as a format. And what happened is the podcasters who had me on as a guest kept saying, you know, Bill, you're really good at this. You should do your own podcast. 
So I said, okay, I'll think about that. Kristen was again, very encouraging, but I said, Mm -hmm. tell you what, Kristen Dilly, I'll do a podcast if you'll do a podcast. And because I thought the last thing the world needs is another white guy of a certain age. And I'm that guy (laughs) pontificating (laughs) about something, you know, sports or, or, you know, food or, or true crime or whatever it is. And I thought having the two perspectives was good. And then you'd have a, a woman and a man, Kristen's younger than I am. So you have a generational perspective. She's lived in Williamsburg. And grew up in Virginia. I never lived in Virginia where the Colonial Parkway murders took place. And although we have very different backgrounds, interestingly, we agree probably, I don't know, what do you think, 90% of the time? Yeah, I'd say so. How hard was it, Kristen, for for Bill to talk you into doing the podcast? I I didn't really want to do it at first. I am very self-conscious about my voice. I don't like my voice. Um, I'm a very shy and introverted person by nature, and I have had to overcome that. As a teacher, I have to put on the extrovert hat, and I'm used to that. Like after I've been teaching for 14 years now, I'm used to it. I can do it. But standing up in front of a room full of teenagers and teaching is very different from let me talk about true crime and put myself out there, especially when, um, when you put yourself out into the world, suddenly everybody becomes a critic. And you're open to you're open to bad reviews, and you're open to um, you know discussion on everything about yourself. And I I didn't like that idea terribly much, but I also wanted to do my part in supporting Bill, and I really did want to talk about the case. I I love talking about this case; it's very interesting to me. And as I said earlier, I'm a true crime junkie from way back. Um, and this has always been a passion of mine. So it it took a little bit of convincing. I was very nervous at first, extraordinarily. Like if you listen to our first couple of episodes of Mind Over Murder, I sound nervous, <laughs> but it's become a whole lot easier. So it, it was, um, it took a little bit of work on, on Bill's part to get me on board, but I, I'm on it now. I'm on board. And uh, I really do. I really do like this. It's a lot of fun. How did you handle the first negative reviews that I, I mean, I'm assuming you have some, everybody usually does. How'd you handle the first really nasty negative reviews? I don't look at the reviews. I, I can't, I can't do that to myself because it That's will all so live smart. in, it will all live inside <laughs> my head and I can't deal with it. So Bill handles the reviews. He looks, <laughs> he looks at all of our social media and stuff like that. I post things on our social media pages, but I will not let myself look at reviews because I couldn't continue to do this if I did. That's smart. That took me like two years to figure that out. I would sit there. Every, I wanted to, I'm like, who is this? Look, that's bullshit. And I need to find out who this person is so I can tell them that's bullshit uh, before I finally would just stop <laughs> looking at them. How, how do you handle them, Bill? Well, they don't bother me. The other thing too, is that, you know, I did college radio a million years ago, back when we spun these mm-hmm. things called records, they were black, right, yeah. made of vinyl. <laughs> round yeah yeah, they were round for the most part yeah. and so you know here i am i came at this thing with an interest in broadcasting from as far back as in college which is in the dark ages and then i'd also represented in my work broadcasters you know newscasters uh, djs and then of course actors and so i sort of knew that you know those slings and arrows that people throw at you 
that sort of just goes with the territory. I actually do look at our reviews, but I don't talk to Kristen about it. By the way, most people are incredibly generous right. and very kind. And people like Kristen's voice. But, you know, she is, she is an introvert, and I'm very much an extrovert. But again, I think we kind of complement each other. Yeah. Let me give you an example. We just all came back from CrimeCon, where we saw you briefly. At the end of every day, Kristen is like wiped. And she says, <laughs> look, I got to just go to my room and just be quiet for like an hour before we have dinner. <laughs> yeah. It's like taking a lot out of her. Whereas at the end of the day, I'm like, yeah, baby, we met so many amazing people. <laughs> and about and we, you know, we made new fans for Mind Over Murder. And we met some people that listen to the podcast and love it. And I know Kristen feels the same way, but at the end of the afternoon, she's like, I can't talk to another person yeah. for the next hour. I just need to be by myself. And I'm like, when's the next event? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. See, I, I can relate with, so like, and I'm very much an extrovert too, but like things like crying, of course I was, you know, I was speaking a lot and doing stuff, but right. the, the mental exhaustion for me mm-hmm. from like. Because I'm constantly trying to remind my, you know, it's like, because we live in, you know, out in the normal world, nobody knows who I am or gives a shit. But if you go to a place that's a true crime podcast convention, you're, you know, you're Tom Cruise walking around there. So everybody wants to talk to you. And I'm constantly trying to remind myself that even though this is the 400th person that I've spoken to today, this is the first time they've spoken to me. Right. So I try to, you know, to be just as engaging as I can with every person that I talk to, because I know, you know, the next day I'm going to go back to the real world. No one will care again. Um, but by the end of the day, I'm just, I'm so mentally exhausted yeah. from just the constant, like your brain has to be engaged all day. Every mm-hmm. time somebody comes up to you, just so the same way. At one point I left and went downtown, like to old, to Fremont street. I was like, <laughs> I had like a little break between, I think I even had something I was supposed to do. And I was, I just went back to the hotel and grabbed my wife. I'm like, let's just get a cab and go downtown. Let's go play roulette or something. I need to, I need a minute to get away and right. unplug. Right. Well, and, and it's funny, your point about the, about the, um, the fact that your limited engagement with that individual will be the, maybe the only time they ever talk to Bob Ruff. Right. And. It's really important. And I worked with all these musicians, including, you know, famous artists and not so famous artists and just like the actors and the broadcasters and the sound recording artists, they have to remember that, that if you meet someone, perhaps Mm -hmm. only the one time and have a conversation with them, two minutes, five minutes, whatever, that's their lifelong impression of you. Mm -hmm. So it is really important that you as the other half of that conversation, do your absolute best to contribute and, and don't be the exhausted jerk. You might want to be. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. There's I I've had, it's, it's, it's an every So prior to doing this, I was a fireman and we used to have people used to for 16 years and, and people, um, and when they wanted to get a permit to burn something, the process for a burn permit, was they would call the fire station and we had to ask them a series of questions and write their name on the list. And it was funny. It has nothing to do with what we're doing now. But I used to later when I became the chief had to like explain to my fireman, like, listen, I know in the fall when people are burning leaves and that's the 400th person that's called you and wants a burn permit. And, <laughs> and they, and they don't know the answer. You're like, listen, idiot, 
It's I asked you it's a simple question. Why? It's like, <laughs> even though that's your 400th call today, that's their only call mm-hmm. that they've made, and they don't know why you're so irritated. So chill out when you're talking to them. And it may be the only time they ever directly interact with your department. Mm-hmm. And right. I always say that you know, negative reviews carry so much more weight than positive reviews because if someone's really outraged, if they called the fire department and they were treated badly, and all they're trying to do is burn some leaves in their yard and they're just trying to do it right. Yeah. They're going to badmouth the the fire department from now till whenever versus they're somebody call me and complain about it. Yeah. <laughs> and now of course with social media they're going to write about, "Oh man, I called those guys." And right. You know, and of course, I know our friends in law enforcement hate it and I'm sure people in in the fire department and other roles hate it too. The I pay your salary, pal. Oh, yeah. Throwback, which is is just so offensive. (laughs) Right. But you're absolutely right. Reminding your firefighters that I know this is awful and boring and we're going to have to deal with hundreds of phone calls. But, man, that's the only time those people may ever interact with you. Interestingly, I think it's funny. We walked past the fire department uh, with they had open bays. We were in Boston seeing my son for Father's Day. And everybody still seems to really like firefighters, which I think is kind of cool. Oh, yeah. It was way better job to have than being a cop always. We used to always make fun of them. Like, everybody loves us. No matter, like, we show up. Because the thing is, nobody, it's not really funny, but for us, it's good. Like, nobody knows, like, what a firefighter's job really is. I think we just squirt water at fire. They understand the science. And there have been many times when fire crews have gone to a fire, made terrible mistakes, and the house burnt to the ground when it probably could have been saved. And people in their article in the paper is still, the firefighters came and gave their best effort, but <laughs> despite their efforts, they weren't able to save the house. But these, these, these amazing people worked so hard. <laughs> it's like, but like. That's not what happened at all. He totally <laughs> screwed up and burned your house down, but they still love us. But, but let a cop make a mistake and they're going to oh. hear about every single mistake they make. Forget it. Forget it. And I, I know this is frustrating for our friends in law enforcement. And we had three different former FBI agents on our Lover's Lane Murders television series. And uh-huh. they, you know, they're sensitive. They're sensitive to this. This is, yeah. they have tremendous expertise and years of experience and lots of worthwhile things to say, but man, that's a tough job and not a job. Both of us have, have said on the podcast many times, we would not care to be full-time law enforcement. It's a really tough gig. No, not for me. Instead, we're podcasters <laughs> and, and so you guys launched How's that for a segue? That's that's a that's some that's some professional podcast segueing right there. Uh, <laughs> uh, you guys started Mind Over Murder in 2020. Now, was this? I always ask this every time because there's so many podcasts that I talk to that started in 2020. Was this a pandemic podcast? Like we're not doing anything else? Let's make a podcast, or that's a coincidence? It is total coincidence, and we get to say we were pre-pandemic. We decided to put the podcast together in December before Mm -hmm. the whole COVID thing broke. Uh And then that there was a break for Kristen with school. 
And so yeah. I went down. This is back. Remember, we used to meet in the same physical space. You remember that. <laughs> the masks and the distancing. Right. So I went down to Virginia and stayed down there for maybe close to a week. Yeah. And we researched and recorded like the first five, I would say. Yeah, five episodes. At Kristen's kitchen table in Virginia. Uh, of course, I came down from Connecticut and that's how we launched the podcast. So we actually are not a, a COVID related podcast. We came out just before that. So you're, you're ahead of it. That is, there, it is, there's so many mm-hmm. we'll see like started in 2010. And it's like, we were out of work. We were sitting around, we weren't doing anything. <laughs> and we're like, let's make a podcast. Um, so now you guys have, uh, over 150 episodes out, <laughs> Um, and, and despite the fact that we're talking a lot about the colonial parkway murders, and we're going to talk about them a little more, uh, the podcast is actually short form and you cover, um, lots of cases, right? Yeah. Uh, lots of other cases and just have a lot of discussion about the cases. How did you guys come up with the format of the show? Well, we decided that we didn't want to do scripted podcasts. First of all, no, no offense against scripted podcasts, but, um, we felt like with, Bill's extraordinary ability to be an extrovert and talk cogently (laughs) on every subject under the sun. We felt like we would do really well um, with just a discussion format. Um, And Bill and I, when we started the podcast, we had reached a point where we were having like daily phone conversations about the case and then everything related to the case. So we felt like this is just so if, if you just put a microphone in front of us, you're going to get good content because we're constantly discussing the case and then anything else that happened to catch our attention. In terms of content, we were in the middle of filming the Lover's Lane murders. We had actually wrapped on it and we knew that we couldn't talk about the Colonial Parkway murders case right away because we, we didn't want to get in the way of our upcoming series. So we started um, with just some cases here in Virginia that we felt were important to, um, uh, discussed because they maybe hadn't been covered in the media as uh, much as they deserved. Um, and so we started with that with the intention that, okay, by the time we get to season two, maybe, then we discuss the Colonial Parkway murder, start to finish deep dive. And one of the things we did too was we've both met so many amazing people mm-hmm. that are experts in their field. So for instance, you meet someone uh, like, say, David Middleman from Othram Labs. And David is, you know, incredibly enthusiastic about forensics and the cutting edge technology that his lab is putting forward to help solve cases. And, you know, we said, David, will you be on our podcast and talk to us about this? Keeping in mind, you know, we're not scientists or listeners or average folks, but he said, oh no, absolutely. And so we've had this opportunity to have all of these amazing people that we've met and worked with in the Colonial Parkway murders, in the television series, come on as guests. And what most of them, you just, Kristen will put together typically 15 questions and we alternate back and forth. Kristen asks a question, Bill asks a question, and we just try to have an organic conversation in a way that can be understood by civilians because we're not experts. Mm-hmm. Right. And we just had phenomenal success with these amazing experts. And I don't think we've ever, of all the 
incredible people we've talked to, I don't think we've ever been turned down. I think everybody has always yeah. said, yeah, sure. I'd love to be on your yeah. podcast. So it's a scheduling challenge, as you know, but mm-hmm. it's afforded us an opportunity to introduce our audience to all sorts of amazing people. So, you know, you could talk to Barbara Ray Venner about how they solved the Golden State Killer case or Jim Clemente about, about what does a profiler do? There's so many different amazing people that you can talk to. Um, and we're learning as we go and we take the audience along for the ride. That's yeah, a great, it's a great format. And the, in the episodes that I've listened to, the discussions are amazing. Um, I want to get to, before we run out of time today, I want to, I do want to talk about the, um, the lovers lane murders as they called them on the, the oxygen series, um, or the colonial parkway murders. Um, so if we can give, give us a quick breakdown of, of that case, like I said, Bill's, uh, sister was one of the victims. Uh, interestingly, they called them the colonial parkway murders, even though I think only half of them occurred right on right. the colonial parkway. That's right. Right. Um, right. uh, but there's four incidents, uh, that, occur- that occurred, uh, and I'll let you guys go ahead and just break down. What were the, what were the four, uh, the four sets of double homicides? Well, I'll start with the basics with the colonial parkway murders. What you have is a series of of double homicides, four couples, approximately one couple a year for four years in a row from 1986 to 1989, centering in and around Williamsburg, Virginia. The interestingly, the four double homicides have never been linked forensically. In other words, the available science, which is not great. Remember, we're talking about murders that go back now 30 to 35 years. Nothing in the forensics actually links the four double homicides, but you do have four couples in cars in isolated rural locations that are considered lover's lane type locations. Mm -hmm. And it's approximately one couple a year, 86, 87, 88, 89. And the first uh, two victims are a lesbian couple. My sister Kathy Thomas and her girlfriend, Rebecca Dowski. And then they're followed by almost exactly a year later, a couple in a, I should use the term loosely. They'd only met that day. So you can't regard them as a serious couple. No disrespect. Uh, 14 year old Robin Edwards and 20 year old David Knobling were killed about half an hour, 40 minutes away at a place called the Ragged Island Wildlife Refuge. And the third case is technically a disappearance case. That's the following April. So now we're into April 1988. Uh, A couple on a first date, Keith Call and Cassandra Haley, who goes by Sandy, disappear while coming home from a college party. They're students at Christopher Newport University. Keith's car is found along the Colonial Parkway in a very similar scenario to where my sister Kathy's Honda Civic was found with her and her girlfriend Rebecca Dowski's bodies. That would have been a year and a half prior to the disappearance of Keith and Sandy. There's a lot of odd things about Keith and Sandy's disappearance. First of all, the bodies have never been found. Although I think it's safe to say, and I I think Kristen would agree that it's 30 plus years later, I don't think they're walking through the door tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But the Colonial Parkway, where the Toyota Celica that Keith was driving that night was found, um, 
that's not on the way home from the party that they attended um, at Christopher Newport University and the Grafton area where he was dropping her off with a 2 a.m. curfew. And then finally, in 1989, over Labor Day weekend, two people who also are not actually a couple, Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer, go missing alongside Interstate 64, which is the only kind of major road in this mix. They, mm-hmm. they disappear while driving from Amelia County, Virginia, up near Richmond, down to Virginia Beach. And Anna was actually engaged to her traveling companion's brother, Clint Lauer. So she's not Daniel Lauer's girlfriend. She's his brother's girlfriend. And they've just moved from Amelia County, which is kind of out in the country, down to Virginia Beach, which is obviously a lot more fun and activity. But they're really struggling financially. And so Daniel, the brother, is moving in with his girlfriend and brother to help make the rent. They disappear along Interstate 64 and are missing for six weeks. Six weeks after they've gone missing, their bodies are found at a hunt club off Interstate 64, about a mile as the crow flies from the rest stop they think they may have stopped at. And then Mm -hmm. oddly, Daniel's 1972 Chevy Nova, kind of a real beater, but an operational car is found in the opposite rest stop. In other words, heading in the wrong direction as if it was being driven back home towards Amelia County, opposite the rest stop on the other side of the divided highway, which is the more logical place for them to stop. And in this example, the two of them are laid out side by side under an electric blanket from Daniel's Chevy. And it was very difficult to determine cause of death, but they believe that a knife was used. So, and let let me just circle back on that. Case number one, Kathy and Becky are killed with um, rope. They're strangled and then their throats are cut from beyond ear to ear. Kathy, my sister, is essentially decapitated. In the second example, incident number two, Robin Edwards and David Knobling, they're shot to death and their bodies are dumped in the water where they're found three days later. In incident number three, Keith and Sandy, Keith Collin and Cassandra Haley, they disappear. We don't know how they died. And then finally, in incident number four, Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer, we think a knife was used because the Smithsonian, in reviewing the bones, the bodies were very badly decomposed despite the fact that it was only six weeks. They found nick marks on the bones. Mm -hmm. So a lot of mystery around this case. For a lot of experts, they feel like it feels like law enforcement may be involved. That is law enforcement or someone presenting as law enforcement because it feels like the cars are stopped, they believe, and the someone rolls up on them and engages with them in a way that they think doesn't seem initially threatening and so even from the very beginning of the case with when kathy and becky had been killed and the other couples had not yet been killed um there was always a strong sense that this could be a law enforcement person or an imposter i'll stop there 
Yeah, and what's super interesting about the case is they're considered connected by a lot of people, and there are certain there are obvious similarities. All of them are couples or appear to be couples mm-hmm. in cars, but then at the same time, like the the mo's are different on all four cases. You know, they have a, you're you're strangled, you're shot, completely disappeared, uh, possibly stabbed. Um, it's odd. I'm, I'm curious. I, I know I listened to it years ago, but I don't remember what was what was Jim's take on it. I mean, I I know he believes that the the four are all connected. Did did he? What was his kind of profile of who may have done something like this? Well, um, presenting as law enforcement definitely seems to be the consensus from most uh-huh. of the people who have worked the case. And I know that when Jim. Uh, worked on the Lover's Lane murders, and we had two other FBI agents, or I'm sorry, we had one other FBI agent, Maureen O'Connell, and then Lonnie Coombs. Uh, They actually sort of disagreed. There There was never a consensus that anyone was able to come to as to whether or not all four of those cases are connected, which made for some very interesting interplay, um, ultimately, when this series came out. So, And if you were to ask Bill or I on any given day, whether we think these four incidents are connected, it kind of depends on what day you would get us on as to whether we think Uh they are. But I would say that right now we are leaning heavily toward um, not all four of the cases are connected, but we do agree with the someone potentially posing as law enforcement theory. When, when you when you are finding yourselves leaning that way, do you think that all four were independent or that maybe a couple of them were connected and a couple of them weren't? Um, I think that if there's any case that's going to fall off the table eventually in terms of not being connected to the others, it is probably the fourth incident, the one on Interstate 64. Um, mm-hmm. We do think there are some indicators that a couple of the others are connected, but again, it also depends on which one of us you're talking to. I tend to think incidents two and three are probably connected, and I think Bill's sister and her girlfriend, Rebecca's case, I think that may not be connected to the others. But if you were to ask Bill the same question, you may get a different answer. Well, incident number four, Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer on Interstate 64. There's a, a large amount of money for 1989 missing, six to $800, that Daniel had collected for painting jobs he had done that summer. It's Labor Day now. They're heading down, and he's going to move in with his girlfriend. And remember, he's helping them get off the ground financially, where they've been struggling with these literally burger-flipping level jobs. We think there's a possibility that Incident number four may be a robbery gone bad or perhaps a low-level drug deal gone bad. They may have tried to score some pot to sell down in Virginia Beach, keeping in mind Mm. Virginia Beach, a lot of young people, a lot of college kids, and they're trying to figure out a way to get ahead. And these local jobs that they found aren't really cutting it. They've actually been threatened with eviction. They had their power turned off. So they're kind of desperate for cash. And I think there's a possibility, and I'm not attaching any value judgment here. There's a possibility, a strong possibility, that some friends of uh, Clint Lauer um, and Anna Maria Phelps 
knew that Daniel was going to be collecting a fair amount of money. And that money goes missing. And her, she has two wallets with her and his wallet. They all go missing. So that's very unusual. And several of the other examples, there's money in wallets, not a lot of money, but there's money in, in wallets mm-hmm. that are out. The wallets are out on the dashboard. So there's a sense that maybe they were pulled over by a cop or someone presenting as a police officer. In the incident number four, it's very different. So we think that incident, which is a Virginia State Police case, as you mentioned, Bob, one of the struggles we have with the Colonial Parkway murders is two of the cases that are associated with the Colonial Parkway, this national park, are FBI cases from the word go. And then the other two cases are Virginia State Police cases. And then to make things a little more complicated, the two Virginia State Police cases are handled by different VSP offices. So there's a lot of friction, to be frank, sure. between the agencies. The feds don't get along with the state and local law enforcement particularly well. They're, it's better now, but 30, 35 years ago, it was not a great relationship. And the information sharing wasn't anywhere near as good as it should have been. So there are a lot of elements that have added up to very slow progress in these four double homicides. Yeah. And it's, it's super, because there's also, you know, with a couple of the sets of victims for in the mid eighties that they're kind of taboo, you know, your, your sister was in a same sex relationship and then. Um, the, the second set of victims, you have a 20 year old man with a 14 year old girl mm-hmm. in the car, you know, so there's, there's just, there's just a lot of ins It's a very interesting case. I would highly recommend to check out, um, the episodes on real crime profile. Do you guys ever talk about, get to talking about the colonial parkway murders on mind over murder? Oh yes. Yeah. We, oh yes. Once the television series lovers lane murders launched, we were then free to start talking about the case. As, uh-huh. as Kristen said, we didn't want to step all over our own television show at the right. time. Once the show had launched, we were pretty free to engage in conversation. And as a matter of fact, we're in the middle of a three episode arc right now, where we said to our listeners, ask us anything and we'll answer it. And we've gotten some fascinating questions and they've really put us on the spot. We were joking that, you know, they weren't going to ask us about gardening tips or our favorite <laughs> recipes. No, no, no. They were like, you know, who do you think the leading suspects are? You know, uh, um, there, there were some questions like, Kristen, how do you find the time to do a podcast and be a full-time teacher? Which is a valid question. But a lot right. of the questions were, um, how do you think the Colonial Parkway murders are going to be solved? Can they be solved? What's the status on the advanced forensic testing you've been Mm -hmm. looking for? People ask really good and tough questions. And we were like, I kept finding myself saying, I do the edits on the podcast afterwards. And I kept finding myself saying, well, that's a heavy question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But we love the fact that our listeners challenged us. Okay. Tell us exactly what's going on and what you guys think. Well, that's great. So you guys can hear uh, a lot more information and all the nitty gritty details about the Colonial Parkway murders 
uh, by checking out the podcast. And along with, again, there's over 150 episodes. So you can hear great conversation about a ton of cases. Their names are Bill Thomas and Kristen Dilly, and the podcast is called Mind Over Murder. Check it out. Might be your next big true crime binge. Kristen and Bill, thank you guys both so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks, Bob. Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.